You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. When I was in my 20s and in my 30s, I uh, competed in triathlons. Well, um, compete is probably not the best word. I participated in, in triathlons when I was a little bit younger. I always went to the finish line. When I would go to register for the race or to turn in my, my race form, I'd always look at the finish line, just kind of see what it looked like. And I'd always would check out the food as well. Um, normally, it was Gatorade and honey buns, the, the stuff of heaven. So I would go and kind of look at that first and, and see the finish line, see the food at the end of the race. And I would do that because I knew there was going to be a point when I was swimming or biking or running that I would feel like stopping or giving up, throwing in the towel, surrendering to the pain. But I would remember what the finish line looked like. And to be honest with you, this shows the uh, depravity of man. I would long for those honey buns and that Gatorade that I would finish the race just to get you know, to, to the food at the end. So let me start off this morning by just making this statement. It kind of shows a little bit of the direction of where we're headed today. Here it is. When you feel like giving up, consider the finish line. And there may be some here today that you feel like giving up spiritually or giving up on yourself, giving up on God, giving up on following Jesus with all of your heart, maybe giving up in, in marriage or giving up with the pain that you're going through in life, whatever that might be. I know even in a, in a crowd like this or watching online at home, there, there has to be some that are thinking about giving up. And so if, if you are at that place even today or think that you might be in that place one day, I want to encourage you to consider the finish line. With your copy of God's Word, it should be no surprise to you whatsoever. Let's go to the eighth chapter of Romans together. Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up where Mark left us last week, and that is in verse 18. So Romans chapter 8, verse 18. We will be reading through 18 and through 25 this morning, but let's just do verse 18 first. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I encourage you to have your copy of God's Word open or your uh, smartphone to that place on your app, Romans 8, 18. Paul is writing, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Let me read that again to you. For I consider that the sufferings of this day, of this time, of this season, they're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. First of all, let's, let's understand suffering biblically. Let's get a biblical worldview on what suffering truly is. I just will give you three things you'll see on the screen. Biblical suffering is spiritual battles. It's physical frailties. It is persecutions for righteousness. So it's, it's spiritual battles, that spiritual attacks, that spiritual wrestlings that you might be going through. That is a part of suffering. As you suffer in those spiritual wrestlings, as you, as you suffer in those spiritual battles, that is a part of suffering Biblically, um, physical frailties, that can be pain or aches or sickness or disease. It can specifically be cancer, a, a suffering that the Bible recognizes as true suffering. You can look at the life of, of Job. Uh, you can look at the life of Paul. We don't know exactly what he was suffering from, but there was a, a, a physical frailty to him. And then thirdly, the persecutions that you might face for your righteousness. In other words, we, we suffer because we're doing the right thing, or we suffer because we're living out 
our faith, or we might face persecutions because we're carrying Scripture, the fullness of Scripture out in our lives. That would be those three things. If you were to take the full offering of Scripture, I think you could boil all the suffering and the characteristics of suffering down to those three things in Scripture. So that's what biblical suffering is. Maybe it would also help us to understand the definition of biblical suffering by realizing what biblical suffering is not. Biblical suffering is not consequences of foolishness. There's no suffering for that. Well, there's suffering in that, but it's not biblical suffering. Consequences of foolishness fall out from just being a jerk. <laughs> that's, that's not biblical suffering, nor is being inconvenienced. Wow. Nor is being inconvenienced. I could preach a sermon on that because I've read too many social media posts these past couple of weeks. But we, I think in the West, we call persecution, we call things persecution too quickly. I think we need to slow it down a little bit, Christians in the West. We have to be careful and be slow what we call persecution because I think sometimes we call out, I'm being persecuted and our true Christian family in Nigeria and in North Korea and in Saudi Arabia, they kind of shake their head realizing we really don't understand here in the West what it means to be persecuted. But that is really a picture of biblical suffering. So one more time, biblical suffering is what? Spiritual battles. It is physical frailties. It is persecutions for righteousness. So look at verse 18 again. Let's take verse 18 and consolidate it into just a few words. I think this is what verse 18 would be saying to us today. Future glory far surpasses present troubles. Where we're headed, the glory of where we're headed, and not just like the glory of heaven, but the glory in our lives that we might see glory. That far outweighs these things that we would say are just our present troubles. That's what Paul uses in the ESV, at least the rendering of the, the phrase, this present time. Back in the 1976 Montreal Olympics, there was an incredible Japanese gymnast by the name of Shun Fujimoto. And Shun actually was kind of down the line on the long list that particular year of the incredible Japanese athletes who were gymnasts. Uh, he was really good at the floor exercise, so he was given that slot in the team competition. And on the very last tumbling run, um, Shun landed awkwardly on his knee, and it shattered his kneecap. It shattered his patilla. Because there was another incredible athlete that was supposed to compete on the rings, there wasn't that much fear, except that athlete was sick the night before and was still sick on that day of competition. So just about 90 minutes after Shun had shattered his kneecap, he was called upon to participate in the rings. And he executed a flawless routine. But then it came time for the dismount. And the dismount was a double turn, double, a full twisting double, double somersault from eight feet off the ground. He, he lands it, of course, on, on both legs and throws his hands up in the air. And as he landed, he actually dislocated that broken patilla and tore the ligaments in his knee. Shun would never compete again after that event for the rest of his life in gymnastics. As he threw his hands up and the judges gave him a score completely unaware of what had happened or what had happened an hour and a half earlier, he was given a 9.7, which allowed the Japanese gymnast to beat the Soviets by four-tenths of 1% to win the gold medal in team gymnastics in the 1976 Montreal Olympics. Did someone clap over there? That's awesome that you clapped over there for that. Pain for that moment. 
but a gold medal forever. Christian, when we have spent one second in the presence of God, when we see his glorious presence one day, all the suffering that you've endured, all the hurts of this lifetime, all the things you had to give up in following Jesus, all of those things will mean nothing whatsoever because we will see his glory unpacked. His brilliance will be before us. It'll be pain for this moment, but his glory for all eternity. I had lunch this week with one of our relatively new members here at Highland. His name is Silas Nasita. And Silas said this to me. He said, this life is the only time in eternity when we get to praise God in suffering and sorrow. This is a a young man who said this to me. We're eating pizza. I said, Silas, bro, back back up and say that to me one more time. I I might need to preach on that on Sunday. That's an incredible statement. He said, this life is the only time in eternity when we get to praise God in suffering and sorrow. And sorrow. Not bad for a football player, not bad for a running back. I thought that was a pretty impressive statement because you realize that the average life of an American is 78 years, four months, and two weeks. And in that little window compared to eternity, this is the only window where we will have suffering, the only window where there will be sorrow. And what an incredible opportunity we have, sisters and brothers to put our hope in God, to trust God, to press into God during this small window. In comparison to eternity, just these, let's say on average, 78 years or so that we have here on this planet, what an incredible opportunity to praise God in the middle of suffering and sorrow. Paul would say the same thing to a different audience um, just a few years later. In fact, it's also just a few pages over. So you don't mind keeping your finger there in Romans chapter 8. And go over probably 12 pages in your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians. So same author, Paul, same Holy Spirit, different audience. And go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. Just keep your finger there in Romans 8. We'll bounce right back. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is, is pretty much the same thing. Again, Paul is saying the same thing to, to different people. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16. Great passage that, that Drew Humphrey took us to earlier this year. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, here's the suffering, here's the sorrow, here's the difficulty, here's the affliction. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How does Paul define affliction? How does Paul define sorrow or or difficulty? He calls it here momentary, even though it doesn't feel like that in the middle of, of affliction and difficulty. It's momentary and it's light. It may not feel light to you. If you're suffering today, you've been hurting this past week, going through sorrow, going through a biblical definition of suffering recently. It may not feel momentary. It may not feel light, but it is compared to what? Compared to glory. Which is two things Paul announces to us here. It's eternal and it's weighty. In fact, that word glory in the Old Testament, we would call it kabod for English speakers, but it's kavod in in Hebrew. It just means to have weight. Interestingly enough, the the root of that word uh, kavod or, or kabod, it was a description of people who had a lot of food available to them. And because they had a lot of food available to them, they ate a lot of food. 
and they became big and blessed people. They became weighty. And that's where we get the word kabod, to have a lot of weight. And so if you've put on a few pounds during shelter in place these past few months, don't tell people you're getting fat. Tell them you're getting glorious because really that's what it is, right? That's, that's the glory right there. It, it, means, it means weight, a, a weightiness to it. Romans 8, 18, just, just go back because I just want you to see that Paul's gonna say the same thing to the church of Corinth. Now go back to Romans 8, 18. Let me read that for the third time. For I consider that the sufferings, true sufferings, biblical sufferings, spiritual battles, physical frailties, being persecuted for doing the right thing, for righteousness. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, of this lifetime, of this season, they're not even worth comparing with the glory, the weightiness of God that is to be revealed to us. Let's continue to read. Let's read verses 19 through 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There, that, there's a lot right there. There's, that's some deep, heavy doctrine. So let's understand together what this portion of Romans 8 is saying to us. Here's, here's the, the title you might want to put over Romans chapter 8, verses 19, 20, and 21. All creation is disfigured by the fall. All of creation, all of nature, all that God has created that we can see and that we can't see is disfigured because of the fall. In other words, because of the, the, the choice of man to sin. Creation itself has been disfigured. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, it not only cost them the garden, it cost the garden. Yes, there would now be be sweat on the brow of man. Yes, there would now be work required of man. There would now be, be pain in childbirth for, for women. But it was more than just that. Now the soil would have to be turned. The, 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 the earth would have to be worked. There would now be thorns on the planet. You see, the sin of Adam and the sin of Eve is so pervasive, it rippled across not just the landscape of humanity, it also rippled across the landscape of the creation, as Paul calls it here in verse 19 and 20, the creation itself. So all of creation, all of nature, has been disfigured by the chosen sin of man, man's choice, free will choice to sin. Let me put it this way, the earth is not what God intended it to be. Even the beauty of the earth that we see now is, is veiled. It is all marred. It is all disfigured. It is all diseased. It is all befouled. It is all scarred because man has chosen to sin. The earth is disfigured, is scarred by sin. So mountains and, and animals and oceans and, and, and fields and deserts and trees, all of these, as beautiful as they are to our physical eyes, they're actually marred by the sin of mankind. Let's understand that even in a deeper way this morning. Let me give you three things under that heading of, of all creation being disfigured by the fall. Here's the first thing. Nature is not what it should be because of us. Nature is not what it should be. And I'm using interchangeably the words 
creation or the creation and, and nature. Nature is not what it should be because of us. Somehow our sin, the sin of Adam, the sin of Eve, the sin of, of mankind, somehow it, it cost or it brought about creation's fallenness. Our sin marred all of creation. Creation is penalized because of the sin of man. Now, I don't have time to, to go there today, but if this is piquing some spiritual curiosity to you right now, this week you can go to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. I'll say that again because I see a few of you writing it down. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, to see how indeed nature is not what it should be because of us. Look back in your passage, Romans 8. Let's look at verse 20 through 21 again. For the creation, it was subjected to futility, not, not willingly, but because of him. Now, the past 2,000 years, people have argued over who the him is. You might notice on the screen behind me, I, or screen earlier, I capitalized the H in him, that pronoun, because some, thinks that, some think it is Adam, some, thinks that, uh, some people think that it might be God, and some think that it might be the enemy. Uh, I don't think it's the enemy at all. The enemy does not have that power. And, and Adam, even though he chose freely to sin, Adam does not have the power to subject all of creation. And so I think it has to be God. It has to be God here in verse 24. The creation was subjected to futility, not because it wanted to, but because of God who subjected it. But look at the hope here, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. What is it in bondage to? Corruption. That's that disfigurement. That's that befoulment. And obtain instead, what's the aim of creation? The freedom of the glory, the same glory that the children of God have. Here's the second thing. Nature knows it's not what it should be. And it longs to be restored. So just think about the, the beauty of, of current nature, current creation. Think about the beauty of the Alps or the Hawaiian coast or the Grand Canyon or the Smoky Mountains or the beautiful islands of the Caribbean. They're all just a shadow of what they once were and they're all just a shadow of what they will be. I love how Paul almost personifies creation because what we see in Romans chapter 8 actually another full sermon series we could do on the beauty and the power and the personality of creation because we see here in Romans 8 that creation has a life of its own creation was designed to glorify God just as we are but now creation is being veiled creation is being subjected to what to futility in other words it cannot be at the present time all that creation desires itself to be, here's the third thing from scripture. Nature will be made new when we are in the coming of Christ. Creation will be restored. Creation will be renewed when we are in the coming of Christ. This is what we see in verse 21 here. Verse 21, that the creation itself, it will be set free. That's a, a future glory, a future hope, a future promise. It will be set free from what? From its bondage to corruption. And what is it aiming toward? It is aiming to obtain the freedom of who? Of the glory of the children of God. In other words, nature rides our coattails in redemption. Nature is keeping its eyes on humanity itself knowing that once the children of God are fully redeemed in the coming of Christ, that creation itself, nature itself, also will be made new. Now, this is parallel to every other place in the Bible that affords humanity as the prize or humanity as being above the creation itself or nature itself. It's an incredible thought that Paul gives us here, verses 20 and 21. Let's go to verse 22. 
For we know, for we know that the whole creation, so Paul changes here, not just the creation, but the entirety of creation has been doing what? It's been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So you might want to write this down or consider this or put this in your margin somewhere in your Bible or in a notebook. Creation is groaning as it waits for God's glory. Creation is groaning. This is what we see here in verse 22. As it waits for the glory of God. What is the groaning? What does groaning sound like for creation? What does it look like today in our own understanding? What is nature groaning? You ready? Hurricanes. And tornadoes. And climate change. And erosion. And famine. And drought. This is the groaning sounds of, of, of an earth, of, of a creation of nature that is not what it once was and is not what it will be, but what it is right now, groaning. Here, here's your Greek word for the day. I know you long for these. The, the word groaning is sutin, sutin adzo, sutin adzo. really kind of makes sense. I mean, sutin adzo, it just means to cry out. Or it means to, kind of like that, it means to cry out, it means to, to moan, it means to groan. It's a noise made, this is what's interesting to me, it's the same noise made when someone is dying and they're pushing out those last few breaths. I don't know if you've been there before in the hospital or beside a, a loved one, a, a grandparent, maybe a spouse. In those last few moments of life, there's often this, this groaning this, this moan, this crying out. And, and ladies, you might appreciate that it's also the exact same word in Greek used for the crying out of childbirth. There's this crying out in, in pain, in great difficulty. And do you see that the scripture says here, crying out together. What, what do you mean together? It means the mountains are crying out together. The trees are crying out together. The oceans crying out together, the animals crying out together, the the deserts crying out together, the fields crying out together. So interesting that the Bible uses the picture of childbirth as creation, and soon we'll realize later on in this passage, as, as is humanity is awaiting, creation is awaiting its new birth. I was in the hospital room with my wife Jennifer when she gave birth to Hannah and to Caleb, and our OBGYN down in Houston, that's where we lived at the time, allowed me to do something that I thought was rel- relatively regular until I started talking to, to other dads. Our OBGYN allowed me to be the very first one to have human hands around both of my, ch- my children. So when Hannah was born, I was there and, you know, catch her position, ready to, to receive Hannah, calling out the signals, ready to receive Hannah. And the very first human hands that, that held Hannah were, were my human hands. And it's given the scissors to, to cut the umbilical cord. The same thing happened with, with Caleb. Caleb was born, and the very first hands that ever touched my son were, were, were my hands. And I, I held him, and of course, quickly handed him off to the doctor, the nurses, and, and then was, was whisked away from us. But that was an incredibly spiritual moment, a, a beautiful moment. A childbirth is a difficult thing. It was for me. I'm guessing it was for Jennifer also. It was for me just to kind of watch, you know, all the, all the unfolding. But at the end of, of the groaning and the moaning and the, and, 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 and the crying out, at the end of that was new life. 
You see, at the end of the groaning of creation, the end of the crying out of nature is, is a new world. A newly liberated creation in which, Christians, we will live. This is Paul referencing the new heavens and the new earth. The place that is liberated, the place that is aiming for freedom. So let's read Romans 8, 23 through 25. And not only, so we've been reading about creation and now Paul turns it back to you, Christian. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also, here's that same word, Susan, Susan Adzo, we, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here's what you can write down for those few verses. Now we eagerly await our redemption, our new lives, our new bodies, our new places in heaven. Now we are the ones who eagerly await the the fullness of our redemption, the fullness of our salvation. Paul uses the term here, the fullness of our adoption. But what's the difference, Highland, between nature and Christians? What is the the difference between all the other creation? Why is it that you and I are are the prize of creation? I think we see right here because look who we have. We have the Holy Spirit. The hero of Romans chapter eight, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, coming to us as what? What does your Bible say? As the first fruits. The Holy Spirit comes to us as, as a, first, a first fruit of the future glory. First fruits, what is, what is that? Well, in biblical times, the first fruits were, were the first few hours or several hours of the harvest. So a farmer or the owner of the land would go out and, and would take the harvest in the very first few hours maybe even the first day of harvest, even though there was still two weeks left of harvest, the farmer, the landowners would would take that harvest as the first fruits and that evening they would make a meal from the first things that were harvested, the first things that were taken. It was a down payment, if you will. It was a foretaste of a future feast. This is what it's going to be like for the next few weeks as we continue to gather in this harvest. But let's first of all, see what it tastes like. Let's go make a meal of this. Let's have a foretaste of the future feast. Let's have a down payment of the future fortune of our, of our harvest. This is why the Holy Spirit is called the first fruits. It's the first fruit of our future glory. It's the first taste, if you will, of the glory, the weighted glory of God. It's the first experience of the permanency of God's promises, of God's heaven, of God's home for us as a foretaste of God's eternal presence. So what do we do as we wait for the coming of Christ? What do we do as we wait for the fullness of our salvation, the fullness of our redemption? Verse 23, the very middle of it, uses that phrase right there. We wait eagerly. We wait eagerly. It's, a, it's an expression that means you're on your toes and your head is up. Your head is up, your eyes are open, and you're on your toes. It's, it's uh, the same picture, moms and dads, of your kids when they hear the parade, but they can't see the parade. And they're trying desperately on tiptoes to try to look out into the street to see the band that they hear coming or to to hear the, the, the cheers and the joy of the parade that's coming. They can't, 
see it, but they know it's coming. They are waiting eagerly for that parade to pass right in front of them. They say it again. They know it's coming. They just can't see it, but they're waiting expectation for it. As a, um, as a pastor, I love this next thought. It's the, it's the ring bearer at a wedding. I see this all the time. I, it's my favorite things to do is to look at the ring bearer when the back doors open up and the bride comes down because that ring bearer is so excited and so anxious. He is on his toes looking above the crowd, everybody who's standing up. Why do we have people stand up? Everybody stands up and that poor ring bearer is trying, sometimes even more so than the groom, trying desperately to see that bride that is that's coming in. That expectation, head up, eyes open, on his toes. And we've all wept, well, I've wept, with those videos of the wives in the airport as their military husband comes home from deployment and a sea of military men come off the plane. And the wives are trying to identify their husband so their heads are up and their eyes are open and they're on their tiptoes and then they see each other. They know that they're coming. The wife knows that he's coming. Can't see him yet, but has this incredible expectation, this, this, this eager waiting for him to come off the plane so that she might embrace him and I might melt into a puddle of tears at my house. That's eager expectation. That's waiting with an, an eagerness. Look at verse 24 and verse 25 again. This is, again, waiting for something you can't quite see, but you know it is coming. Verse 24, for in this hope, we were saved. We can't see it, but we know it's coming. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope at all. For who hopes for what he sees? For, excuse me, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, we're not sitting back with our arms crossed, yawning. But we know Jesus is coming. We know the day of our salvation is at hand. We know that the day of redemption is around the corner. We believe that it's coming. So we're awake, we're alert, we're up on our toes. I read a few years ago about a school in Kentucky. It was a school for children with special needs. It was back in the early 80s, actually, when this happened. Miss Clary was the name of the, the teacher in that school. And even though it was a public school or publicly funded school, she would tell the, her kids almost every day that there was a God in heaven who loved them very much, and who knew them and cared for them. And that one day Jesus would come and he would come riding on the clouds and the whole world would see him. On the very first day of school, she would start to say this to her children in her class with special needs. There's a God who sees you, who loves you, who knows you. And one day his son Jesus is gonna come riding on the clouds and everyone's gonna see him. Usually after the second day of school, Miss Clary would have to get some Windex out and clean all the windows in her classroom of all the smudges of the noses and the hands that during every break, would come to those windows because those kids heard that one day Jesus was gonna come riding on the clouds and the whole world would see him. And any free time those kids had, their faces were pressed against those windows. Nose, smudges, fingerprints all over the windows in Miss Clary's class, waiting to see if maybe during their break that day, Jesus might come riding on the clouds. 
I'm saying to you, sisters and brothers, that should be our posture. So prepared with this eager expectation, this eager waiting for Christ to come. And when he does, all of these hurts of today, all these sufferings of today, all these afflictions, all the things that you might be walking through today, we will forget about them as the weighty glory of God appears. Would you stand with me, please, and let's read together the passage we just walked through, Romans chapter eight, beginning in verse 18. Would you read it with me, please? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Would you bow your head with me, please? God, we long, long for that day. We eagerly wait for that day. Not passively, we actively wait for that day when our adoption will be fully signed. And we will see face to face the one who made adoption possible. What a weighty day that will be. And in the weightiness of that day, all the lightness of our physical frailties, all the lightness of the sorrow, the hurts, the disappointments, the betrayals will be gone. And not even worth comparing to the revealed, unpacked glory of God. In his brilliance, we will stand. So God, we ask you bring that day about quickly. We are ready. We are prepared for that day. We will be prepared for that day. God, for those who are watching online or those who are here today, they're not prepared for that day. I pray that they would turn to this Christ even now. God, we thank you for the day when we see you face to face. What a day. What a day. Christ, we sing and we pray. Amen.